All right, so who knows what season of the church year we're in? Advent. Advent, all right. Now, who remembers what week one of Advent is? Winter. Winter, yeah. Hope, hope. yes, we can light the hope candle. All right, week two. Preparation, yes, absolutely, we can light candle two. Candle three. Joy! Joy, yes, I like the exuberance in this room. This is good. How about week four? We haven't lit that candle yet. Anybody, anybody, somebody, 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 somebody. What? It starts with an L. Oh, wow, you got it. Yes, love, love. Love is good. I want to read for you two quick, quick texts. One is from 1 John. God is love. God is love, and this is how, we, how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Faith, hope, and love, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians. These three remain, but the greatest of these is love. So I said you're up for something special today. It will be special in some way, shape, or form. I'm not sure what way, shape, or form it'll be special in. Oh, goodness. I, you know, one of those qualities that we appreciate around here is, is a little bit of messiness, and so we'll see. I think this is going to go well, but you never know, right? We'll see. Kids, when, oh my goodness, I, we, our, our kids around here are awesome. They're just amazing. And, uh, <laughs> no, sorry, you're not a kid. Okay, maybe you're a kid. You, you will call you a kid. We'll call you a kid. So we are doing tonight the Gather Kids Christmas um, pageant or play or I don't know. There are no speaking parts for the kids. Um, so, well, they might speak though, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, I don't know. You want to do that? Tape it on your phone. It's taped on, on okay, cool. Um, and it's in five scenes, Okay. And you'll kind of catch on what we're doing here. We're doing something where we're paying a little attention to how this Christmas story is traditionally told. And well, you, this is inspired in part, it's inspired in part by, by a, a pastor friend, some of you know, um, who I remember being at a Christmas message that he spoke at and he preached at. And he was the guy, if you, you'll know what I'm talking about, who said oftentimes, just a thought. Just a thought. And he talked about how the nativity scenes that he would see when he was headed home from church every day that he was at work, he would notice that they would add an extra character into the nativity scene every week until there were Santa Claus and reindeer and Frosty the Snowman and Superman and everybody else was at this nativity scene. Anyway, it was the first time that I realized that some of our nativity scenes aren't all that historically accurate. So, You'll see what we're doing here. If I could have scene one come out, scene one is Mary and Joseph on their way, on their way where? Anybody? Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Uh, Wait, wait a second. What's going on here? Mary's walking and Joseph is riding the donkey. And he's got sneakers and high, sh- high socks, right? That looks pretty trendy 
for today. So, okay, well, I can see numerous things that are problematic with this story. I mean, besides that Joseph is riding the donkey, that's not traditionally what we see. Make another round around for us. Another round. <laughs> okay, so what else might be going on with this scene besides the wrong person is riding the donkey? Mary's not pregnant, although she might not have been very pregnant at this point. She probably wasn't like really full term. It's this. This is not right. If you read the story, it doesn't say that Mary rode a donkey, or in this case, Joseph rode a donkey. So, sorry, no donkey. No donkey for you. (laughs) Sorry. So let me read the text for you. It's from Luke 2, 1 through 6. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quinarius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up to the town of Nazareth, from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. All right. So what does it matter that they weren't on a donkey? What's the significance of that? You can can involve involve yourself. It took longer. Well, that, that absolutely for sure. There we go, right, absolutely, right? I mean, it should already be obvious in some sense to us by this point in this story, but they weren't, they weren't rich. They probably couldn't afford a donkey. They probably couldn't even afford to rent a donkey. They were poor and, as such, culturally insignificant and also pretty easily exploited. Mary and Joseph, <laughs> sorry, sorry, paradise. I know, right? No Uber donkeys. I don't even know what that. I don't even. Oh, I. <laughs> yeah. No. So you can't text in the. Te- I need a trip to. <laughs> right. No carpooling. No any of that. Inserting a donkey into the story, quite honestly, though it might not seem like a big deal, doesn't really do justice to the fact that they were being exploited. They were poor. They were insignificant. And these were the parents of our Messiah, Jesus. So what does that tell us about those who are poor today, who are seemingly insignificant today, or who are exploited today? What does this story tell us about that? Is God for them, or is God against them? Maybe you are poor. Maybe you are insignificant. Maybe you are exploited, or maybe you feel that way. God is for you, not against you. He is with you, not far from you. All right. Thank you, Mary and Joseph. Song and dance. Take your donkey. Take your donkey. Scene two. Mary and Joseph make it to Bethlehem, and they stand before the innkeeper. Can we get the innkeeper and Mary and Joseph back? I don't know if we have even the same Mary and Joseph. I have no idea. Oh, it's the same Mary and the same Joseph. All right. (laughs) So what happens in this scene traditionally? What do you guys remember about how this goes down? Right? 
they go up and they, they oh, sorry, we're all filled up here in the local inn, the motel, the hotel, the hostel is all filled up. We've got a lot going on here in Bethlehem. I can't believe you haven't heard about that before. Right? Well, the reality is, they're not before an innkeeper. Sorry, Jack. Sorry, that they're, they're, well, they, they are right now, but they're not before an innkeeper. That's not how this story actually goes. They're not at the local Bethlehem hotel, motel, or even hostel. While they were there, it says in Luke chapter 2, the time came for the baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room for them. This translation actually got it right. There was no guest room for them. The word is kataluma, and it refers to a room in somebody's house where they would have it reserved for the showing of hospitality. Joseph was going home. He was going to his family. And when he gets there, he doesn't show up at a hostel or an inn or a hotel or a motel. He shows up at his family's home, his ancestral family's home or some distant relative's family's home. And he doesn't get to stay. They don't get to stay because there's no room for them. It's already taken. There's probably a pretty significant influx of people coming to Bethlehem, extended family. And he's not turned away. They're not turned away by a stranger. They're turned away by their family. So in Jack's case, then, he's not unfortunately just some innkeeper. He's turning them away as his somehow relative, somehow related to them. So the significance of that is that Mary and Joseph were simply not turned away by a stranger because that would be one way to tell the story that wouldn't quite have the profundity that it has. They weren't just turned away by somebody they had just met. Joseph and his pregnant wife were turned away by Joseph's family. Regardless of her being pregnant, their own family were not willing to accommodate them. Why do you think that would be? Why would they not accommodate them? Why would Mary and Joseph not be accommodated by their extended family? Anybody have a guess as to why? <laughs> they were a little fussy, that could be. No guesses? Yeah, that's part of the story, but man, you would think that even they would find room for somebody that was pregnant, wouldn't they? Instead, they, they, yeah, yeah, they're, they're, they're at this point aware that she's pregnant, and they're not married. Mary is pregnant, and Joseph, are, and they're not married. And how do you explain that to your family? Oh, she's pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> nice story. You can stay in the stable. They rejected them, most likely, because they were pregnant and did not want to invite that sort of disgrace into their family. What does that tell us about how we might view people that don't quite fit into our set of expectations and the hospitality that we should show them. And what does this tell us also about God's call on your life? 
on the things that God might call you to that might create you in a context of being shunned by your family? Is there anything God has called you to do where your family has said, oh my goodness, he's crazy. Oh my Lord, he's nuts. Oh my goodness, she's out of her mind. God calls us to those kinds of things, and we cannot let the fear of rejection stand in the way of what God is calling us to. All right, scene three. We need some angels. This is where the scene three, the angels appear to the shepherds. We need some shepherds and some angels. They'll be out soon. Just bear with us. That's right, they're on a union break. (laughs) Shepherds? Shepherds? Do we have any sheep? (laughs) Yeah, he does, doesn't he? He's doubling up. He's he's got a big mortgage. (laughs) He's got to work two jobs. All right. So the angels appeared to the shepherds, Luke 2, 8 through 14. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. Oh, my goodness. That's not, she's not, oh, my. eh. (laughs) Be terrified. Okay, well, nonetheless, they were terrified. Y'all are terrified. Look terrified, come on. Ah! What does terrified look like? But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes, lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of heavenly hosts. Do we have any more angels in there, or is this all we got? <laughs> all right, that's all we got. All right, two, great company, all right. You all, have, you all can be angels, all right? <laughs> Praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. All right, so... Thank, you guys were really, that was amazing. This is, it's really crazy, too. This is like the quietest I've ever heard you guys. You want to sit there? I know, right? They're supposed to be all terrified, and I'm getting kicked. And that shepherd, he's honoring, I'll tell you right now. So, okay, this part of this whole narrative, this part of the story, the Christmas story as it's told in our culture, um, there's something, you know what? They actually get this one pretty right. <laughs> there's not a whole lot that's, that's to be like pointed out is, is, is quite wrong about all of this. But, but still, it's important that we ask, what's the significance of, of this? What is the significance of this whole narrative of angels appearing to shepherds out in the middle of no place? It's that God is announcing, who would choose shepherds to announce his arrival to, the arrival of his son to? It's the least of these. Shepherds weren't wealthy people. They weren't powerful people. They were people that had to go out and live in fields. There weren't showers and there weren't bathrooms. And Well, hopefully they have showered and bathed. <laughs> but nonetheless, 
These are the people that God has chosen to announce the birth of his son to. It's not just the birth that's announced, but also that he is Messiah and Savior. That's announced to these shepherds. And it's not just that there is a Messiah and a Savior born, but that he is born unto them. Unto them a child has been born, a Savior has been born, a Messiah has been born. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born unto you. He is Christ the Lord. Again, what what does that tell us? It tells us that God is kind of crazy sometimes. Like, really? Like, would you, if you were having a child or when you've had a child, do you run out in the middle of the streets and find somebody that is maybe homeless or maybe somebody that works down at Home Depot or hangs out at Home Depot parking lot looking for a job and say, hey, guess what? I had a son. Right? It's kind of crazy that God would choose to show up in the middle of nowhere and announce his birth to a bunch of shepherds in a field. It tells us the Again, most seemingly insignificant people in the world are highly significant in God's eyes. See, now there's a little terror in the room for the angels. <laughs> that God would announce that unto this group of shepherds a Savior has been born rocks our world concerning who we understand is blessed. All right, let's give them a round of applause. Good job. Thank you very much. Now, scene, scene four. Scene four. This is when the shepherds meet Mary, Joseph, baby Jesus with the wise men, right? So we got Mary. We need Mary back and Joseph, and we got the shepherds here. And we need baby Jesus. Oh, oh, look at Jesus. Baby Jesus has been born. Yeah, right. <laughs> He does. He's chunky. (laughs) What was that? (laughs) So, okay, so where are our wise men? Wise men? Oh, wise men. Thank you, wise men. Let's clap for the wise men. So this is our classic nativity, right? where you have Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus lying in a manger, or in this case, being held by his sister, mom. (laughs) And all the shepherds are there, and maybe some angels are there, right? This is a classic scene, but what's goofy with this scene? What's not right with this scene? The wise men. Sorry, wise men, you got to go away. Got to go away, wise men. I'll call you back when it's your time. It's not your time yet. So Luke 2, 15 through 18, when the angels had left them and gone into the heavens, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. What's significant about this scene? Not only were these shepherds the first one to hear about Jesus, 
they, as far as we know, were the first ones to lay eyes on Jesus, first ones to see Jesus other than Mary and Joseph and who might have possibly been at the birth. But they were certainly of people outside of that immediate context, the first people, these shepherds, to hear about him and to see him. What does this tell us? It tells us that even if you're considered by the world as somehow insignificant, and I know there are people sitting in this room right now that have been told before that they are insignificant, do not think for a moment that you have no voice. Do not think for a moment that you cannot spread the word of God's great love and bring great joy in the world. These poor shepherds did, and many listened, and were amazed, we are told, at their story. It tells us that the only qualification we have to have for sharing God's love is an encounter with God's love incarnate, Jesus. All right. Scene five. This is when the shepherds are no longer here. Hi, shepherds. Good job, shepherds. The wise men get there. Oh, you can stay. You can stay, Mary and Joseph. If you get Mary and Joseph are doing a good job too. You can clap for them. Good job, Mary and Joseph. And now we need to bring the wise men back. Is the angel staying? Are you gonna stay? That's fine. Angels are where we can't see them all the time. All right. Wise men. Do we have another wise man? You get scoot over this way a little bit further. Not everybody can see. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, so now we've got it right, right? We've got Mary and baby Joseph and Jesus and the wise men. Does anybody see anything that could be a little off right here? Does this look good? good? Well, we don't know. That's one thing that's possible, right? We really, they brought three gifts, but we don't really know how many wise men for sure. But there's something else, something else. Any, anybody, somebody, somebody? Oh, yes, the baby's not a baby. We've got to get that baby out of there. Bye, SJ. <laughs> By the time the wise men got there, there we go. There's baby, there's toddler Jesus. Hey, Clark, all right. Woo-hoo. Hi. <laughs> all right. I think you better high-five those wise men, too. So we, we know that they weren't, that Jesus wasn't a baby at this point, and that some time had passed. Matthew writes in chapter 2, when they had all gone, so by this time, the wise men had left. The angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, said, get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, when he stayed, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Jerusalem and its vicinity, who, sorry, Bethlehem and its vicinity, who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. So two years. (laughs) (laughs) 
So what is some of the significance of this? Mary and Joseph, Jesus and their family had to uproot their life in Bethlehem that had lasted somewhere around two years. It was not like they were just there overnight or for a few weeks or even months. Two years is a pretty good amount of time to put down some roots. So I ask you, have you ever had to move in your life? Have you moved a lot in your life? When you feel like you're just getting settled in, you finally get relaxed a little bit, and all of a sudden you have to get up and go? Or how many of you have ever had to flee in the middle of the night? Is there anyone among us that has been some, in some sense a, a refugee? Anybody? I know, right? We have it kind of easy in a sense. I know, I was thinking about that up here, yeah. Yes, Mary and Joseph and Jesus and his siblings were refugees. What would have happened if Egypt had rejected Jesus and his family? What if they had said to them, you Jews have a checkered history with us here in Egypt. Do you think we don't remember this Moses guy? Some of you may be peaceable, but how can we trust any of you? We can't go away. You're not welcome here. Maybe that sounds a little far-fetched, but what if that would have happened? when Jesus, Mary, Joseph, and the rest of their family showed up in Egypt. What would have happened? They would have had no place to go. Where would they have gone? Would they have to just return to Bethlehem and experience the fate of Herod? You know, I think at this point you guys can go back if you would like. Thank you very much. Hold on just a second. I recently have read on the Internet because that's such a great source for truthful information. Right? I've read several tweets, or twits, whichever you prefer, that's right, that have mistakenly likened the trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem with that of refugees, and they have been met with many trolls who have rightly rejected the notion that Mary and Joseph were refugees in Bethlehem. Having to go to a city that is not your own for the sake of a census is not on par with what it means to become a refugee. However, what I've been surprised to not hear people point out is while this flight from Nazareth to Bethlehem might not qualify them as refugees, certainly the flight from Bethlehem to Egypt does qualify them as refugees. Nobody questions that. But while people refute the claim that they're refugees for having to go to Bethlehem, they never embrace or consider what the implications of them having to go to Egypt might be. I've not really read anybody claim that they were not refugees again, but not paying much attention to what that means. I have read read plenty of people trying to say that to allow Jesus and his family's experience as refugees to inform the li- our lives of faith is interestingly to go astray. Some people, while they want to admit that they were refugees when they went to Egypt because they can't deny it, nobody wants to really stop and ask, what does that mean for our faith? What is it, how does it inform us? Some people want to try and just say that this Christmas story is about nothing more than the theology and the beautiful theology of a virgin birth and the incarnation of the Son of God. And to read it as being something about refugees is, as the argument goes, to turn the Bible into nothing more than an instruction manual concerning granting asylum. I'm just going to cut to the chase on this. 
The narrative of Jesus' birth, the story we talk about is the Christmas story, the experience of Mary and Joseph and Jesus and his siblings. Well, the theology of that story is beautiful. The theology of the incarnation is incredible. It truly is. To think that God would become flesh and make his dwelling among us. Like that rocks my world. I hope it rocks your world. To think that God would do such a thing. But to imagine that the story of this one who then is son of God making a flight with his family to Egypt does not inform our faith somehow would be to make the fact that we celebrate a virgin birth and the incarnation of God himself, would we make any of, anything of that? It means nothing if we cannot take into consideration what he experienced as incarnate God. To imagine Jesus, the one who says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you when he's an adult, to imagine that he does not remember or hasn't heard the story of how he and his mom and dad had to fly to Egypt, not literally fly, but run, flee to Egypt, and that that does not inform the life that he lives as an adult? Seriously? How could we possibly imagine that did not form Jesus' life? I mean, it's one thing for somebody who's never experienced the tyranny of a ruthless leader saying, pray for your enemies and love those who are your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, but to know that he experienced a true enemy from the time he was a baby or a toddler and says that means, says something quite more profound. So I want to encourage you this Christmas season to not just read the Christmas story and to have the Christmas story influence your life in a traditional way. And what we mean, I guess, by a traditional Western Christmas, where we have a whole hodgepodge of different crazy stuff going on. But we pay closer attention to the context in which Jesus was born. That he was born, incarnate God, into a world filled with tyranny. Into a world where he and his family had to run for their lives. And in that world, he still, as a grown man, says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And let that also inform how you live your life regarding receiving people who are fleeing different situations in their lives. We'll have more to say about this on Christmas Eve. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the little ones that we have the pleasure of having part of this congregation. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you sent your son Jesus to be uh, our Savior, our Lord. Thank you so much, Lord God, that you love us and that you show us what it looks like to love. Help us to love boldly, to love well, to risk, Lord God, to love. We praise you and we thank you that we know what love is, not because we love you first, but because you sent your Son to show us what love looks like. Father, thank you that... uh, You announce your birth to you, the strangest of people, to the least of these, and that you empower all of of us, Lord God, as we realize just who we are, to be proclaimers of your your good news, your kingdom, and your love. We thank you and praise you.
Amen.